0: John chapter 4, beginning in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come to Judah in Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah to Galilee. So this morning we're picking back up in our study of John's gospel. And we're going to finish out uh, chapter four. And this passage tells us of the second sign that Jesus performs in the book of John. The signs are, of course, a very important part of the theme of John's Gospel. Does anybody remember from our opening lesson, I'll be really impressed if you do, uh, how many signs are in John's Gospel, or would anyone like to just make a bold guess as to how many signs are in John's Gospel? Cowards. Seven. Seven being, of course, the, the number of perfection. And the fullness of them is the seventh sign, which is his own resurrection. But John uh, chronicles his book in signs. And sometimes, like in this passage, she will explicitly count them and call them out as such and number them. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll consider that in a moment. Um, can anyone tell me what the purpose of these signs being recorded in John's Gospel is? you can Nate to show his glory and to um, bringing his block. okay good general answer true let's try uh, John chapter 20 verses 30 to 31 because I told you six months ago you're supposed to remember everything I said that is of course not true alright I mean it'd be nice right. yeah John, who wants to read that for us? John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Jack. 30 to 31? hmm Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. What? <laughs> he did other things that aren't written in the Bible? Whoa. So John must have had, like, a careful reason for why he selected... The ones that he did. If he, I mean, if he's not telling us the whole story, there, he's got some angle here. Keep going. What's, what's he saying? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, That, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Ah, that's why they're written. So that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. What does Christ mean? The Anointed One. It means he's the Messiah. He's the prophet, priest, and king. And that by knowing that, that you might believe in him, and so have life. So his, his goal in, in writing this is that we might know the identity of Jesus as the Christ. And that by knowing that and believing that, that we might have eternal life. That's why John wrote this. And so that's when, when, when an author of scripture gives you like his purpose statement, that's generally a good grid through which to interpret uh, what he writes. He's telling us <coughs> something significant there. And so we're going to look at how does this sign show us that Jesus is the Christ and how does it lead us to life in his name. But before we get there, uh, we want to note that uh, verse 54 tells us this is the second sign that he did. And John kind of bookends this section with reference uh, to the first sign and the second sign. What's the first sign that John did? Or not John. What's the first sign that Jesus did that John recorded? It's in verse 46. We just read this. Yes, Anya. Turning the water into wine. Turning the water into wine. All right, now what was the occasion on which he did that sign? A wedding. A wedding. Uh, Duncan, you were just at a wedding yesterday or the day before, right? Me? Francis, yes. Francis Duncan. (laughs) Not that, not, yeah, Duncan last name, not Duncan first name. What kind of like overall mood was that occasion? Everybody
1: was crying. Tears
0: of joy. It was was a happy occasion. The the Duncans are a happy crying people. That's good. And now what's the occasion for this sign that we just read about? Josiah? Death. Death. Is this a good day or a bad day for this man? It's a bad day. It's a very sad occasion. And the point that I want to draw from that is that Jesus is here to both take the the good things and make them better. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly, John 10.10. And he's also come to take the sad and solemn occasions and redeem them. He is sufficient for both events. He covers the whole gamut, the whole spectrum of our lives. He is Lord over all of it. Um, James Boyce writes it does not matter who you may be sooner or later you are going to experience great sorrows or even tragedies in your life you may be rich or poor a man or a woman, black or white tragedy inevitably will become part of your personal experience and there will be nothing that you can do to avoid it somebody uh, please read for us Job chapter 5 verses 6 to 7 Job 5, 6 to 7. Man is born to trouble. Trouble will inevitably be part of your life. Those are the facts of life, and I would be lying to you if I told you anything differently. Who's seen The Princess Bride? The truest line of that movie, life is pain. Anyone who tells you differently is selling something. But life is not pain without redemption. Life is not pain without hope. Life is not pain without joy. Psalm 30 verse 5 says weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And the way through the sorrow, the way through the sadness, is coming to the Lord Jesus. Uh, particularly, the occasion that this man finds himself in uh, with the the death of his son, or the impending death of his son. Um, you guys don't have children and cannot relate to this directly, but I'm sure you can Loosely understand. um, There is nothing more grievous for a parent than to consider that. Uh, I had the very unfortunate experience of having two of my three newborns in the hospital for extended periods. Both Brooke and James, after they were born, Um, James uh, nearly died several times, and Brooke, um, when she was just a month old, spiked a hundred and two or three degree fever and was in the hospital for ten days. Just kept treating it, but couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I I never (laughs) knew uh, the need I had for prayer until those days of my life. And the Lord is there for you. And what you do in those moments of of sadness and sorrow is is you go to him, as this man did in our passage. But also, he is there for you in the times of happiness and joy. And don't forget him or neglect him or leave him out. Uh, As one commentator put it, Jesus is more than equal to either occasion. He has a place in all circumstances. If we invite him to our times of innocent happiness, he will increase our joy. And If we call on him in our times of sorrow and anxiety or bereavement, he can bring consolation, comfort, and a joy that is not of this world. And so I'm going to lead with you all my big takeaway. Usually we want to build up to this. I'm going to give it to you straight right now. And that is that whatever event that you find yourself in, a time of great sadness yeah. or a time of great joy, what you need above all else is to know that Jesus is Lord and that, and to believe in his goodness and kindness. And that by believing, you will find life in his name. And we'll see that work out in this passage in three parts. We'll see the, the moment of sorrow in verses 46 to 48. We'll see the belief in verses 49 to 50. And then the life in verses 51 to 54. So, <clears throat> first the, the moment of sorrow. So, Jesus arrives to Cana in Galilee and he's swarmed by this great crowd of people. And we see this event in verses uh, 43 to 45. And there is one man that has need of Jesus, as we've read, because his son was ill. And he's come to Cana from Capernaum, which is roughly speaking 20 miles by foot. It's a long journey. He traveled a long way to get to Jesus, not because his boy had a runny nose, but because he's nearly dead. And this, this man had heard of the healings that Jesus had done. We, we read about them a little bit in chapters 3 and 4, and he's, he's heard about that. And he says, maybe this miracle worker can help me. Maybe he will have a heart of compassion on my son. And the ESV says he, he asked him to come. Which is a literal rendering and perfectly fine, but sometimes I think something more dynamic is appropriate here because "ask" sounds almost passive. You know, you you ask your teacher a question, or you you ask your friend for a ride. It's something you don't really think about much. The other translations, um, like the NIV, would say he he begged. Uh, another translation, the Christian Standard Bible, would say he pleaded. Um, the New King James and the New American Standard say he implored, or the, the old school uh, King James says he besought. He was desperately asking. It wasn't just a casual thing. And again, it's, it's hard to put into words that y'all can relate to, but there's a deep gut wrench that comes to a parent when their child is, is, is in danger and there's nothing you can do about it. He's pleading with the Lord. My friends and I talk back home about how, how vastly different we are now that we're parents. Like, things make... like <laughs> I'm oversharing here. Uh, <laughs> I used to never cry at movies. I'm a baby for anything <laughs> sentimental about a, a daughter and her father or, or a son and his dad or whatever. It's terrible. It changes you. And... and, and as much as that affection is real, it also leads to that depth of desperation when there's nothing that you can do to help. And so Jesus responds to him in verse 48. Would somebody read that for us? Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. sounds a little harsh, don't you think? Doesn't that sound rough? Hard not to say, Lord, he's desperate. Lighten up a little. And some have argued that these words of Jesus are so hard to square with his character that they must not be original to the text. Problem with that is um, every reliable manuscript of John that we have has these words. And we don't do our theology by making preconceived notions, and then making the text fit them. No, we derive our theology from the text that we have. So what do we do with Jesus' words here? Well, we read them very, very carefully. Does anybody notice something a little funny in the the print of that word, you? Like a number there that's not supposed to be there? It's a footnote. And it's, it's an important one for understanding this. It says... That this word, you, is plural in the Greek. Jesus is addressing the crowd and generally saying, you guys aren't going to believe unless you see signs and wonders. And so what does the, the use of the plural mean? It means he's addressing the people in Galilee generally and not this man particularly. And Jesus is actually contrasting this man with the crowd. These crowds have gathered to see a show and only then will they decide whether or not they believe. This man has in the word uh, has 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 instead shown faith by making the journey that he will do great things and then expects to see the sign in response to his faith. And we'll look at that faith in this next section. The man says to Jesus, "Sir, or in the, this same word, could actually also be translated as Lord. Um, so, even that, that form of address could be uh, an expression of faith. But the, the point is, he, he, the important thing to note from this verse uh, 49 is that he, he's coming to Jesus with respect and reverence. His faith may be weak and ill informed, but he has the at least the, the loose impression that Jesus is able to do something about him, even though he's not in the same geographic space as his son. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. The implication is he wants him to come to his home, lay hands on him, do something. Because if you don't, he will die. And we contrast this with the the faith that that Jesus celebrates in Matthew chapter 8. He says uh, that the centurion who asks that the Lord would heal his servant, says, don't even bother coming. I know you have the authority to do it from right here. And Jesus says, no no greater faith have I ever seen. But he's still gentle with this man, and he speaks the miracle into existence, saying, go, your son will live. And then we're told that the man believed the words that Jesus spoke. And this, this is evidenced by his faith in going home. That was a long trip home. I came to ask this miracle worker to come with me and heal my son. And he has just spoken a word. And I'm going to go find out if it happened or not. That's a long day. But saving faith doesn't always understand all of who Jesus is. And that's good news because you don't understand all of who Jesus is. Neither do I. But here's what saving faith does. Whether we understand fully what he's called us to do or whether we understand fully what what his word means, we do take him at his word. We do believe the words that he speaks. And that doesn't mean that we never ask questions. It means we ask questions rightly. Um, One of my favorite examples of this is in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We look at the early chapters of Luke a lot this time of year. And there's a portion in Luke chapter 1 uh, where, where the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and he says that your, your wife is going to have a son. And how does Zechariah respond? He says, how do you expect me to believe that? I'm old, she's old, we're past the age of childbearing. That's impossible. How do you expect me to believe that? What happened to Zechariah? He was muted. He was not allowed to speak. He was not able to speak for the entire duration of that pregnancy. But then in the next section same angel comes to Mary and says you're going to conceive a child and she asks a question she says how will this be since I know not a man there's there's a posture of asking questions that's doubting and disrespectful and accusatory God does not receive those well there's another posture of asking questions that is humble and seeking understanding and God is pleased to grant that and so we, we take him at his word. It doesn't mean we don't ask questions on, on things we don't understand, but it doesn't mean that we resolve to whether or not we understand, believe, and obey. And one brief point of application uh, at this point is if you're a, a little stagnant in your faith, which is not an uncommon thing, not only at your age, but at all ages, the best way to mature your faith is to spend time reading, learning, digesting, marking the Word of God. Start with five minutes a day, maybe a chapter. But whatever it takes to get started, just get God's Word in front of your eyes. Read it, believe it. Ask questions. I would love nothing more than for you to come to me and say, Pastor, Early, I was reading Second Chronicles, and I don't understand a thing of what's going on there, and I would, I would love to get with you and talk about that and work through it together. But the important thing is that we read God's word, and we take him at his word. And then finally, we'll see what happens for this man in verses 51 to 54. As he was going down, the servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, about the seventh hour. What's really interesting is the end of verse 53. It says, and he himself believed, because he knew that was the hour Jesus had spoken this. And, and what we see in this passage here is that the man evidences faith early on by coming to Jesus. By the way he speaks to Jesus. It actually says um, that he, that he uh, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him in verse 50, and then it says again he believed in verse 53. Now, what's going on here? The point is that, that faith is an ever growing, ever progressing thing. Um, so many Christians are concerned uh, that, that they don't have strong enough faith, and, and we want stronger faith. I want stronger faith. But we have to recognize that it's a progressive, it's an ongoing thing that, that, that grows in our hearts. That he himself believed in verse 54. And we see that worked out through the passage. And the the result of that belief, the result of that faith, is what? Life. For his son, now, and eternal life for this man who took Jesus at his word. And that's the offer that's available to you guys. And I hope that you have believed and you have secured eternal life. But also, As we said earlier, Jesus comes to make his blessings flow. far as the curse is found, he comes to grant abundant life, fuller life, growing life. And that's what it means to know that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. God in heaven, I give thanks to you for these, my young friends. I give thanks to you for the richness of this passage and the simple promise that's laid before us. Those who take you at your word, receive life. I pray that that would be the case for all of my friends here. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.